God's word comes to us today from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Man, he lucked out with a short passage, huh? <laughs> You're welcome, Timmy. Um, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we sit humbly at your feet. Father, normally to sit at anyone's feet is such a degrading thing. But to sit at your feet is truly an honor. It is the place where we are esteemed. It is the place where we are loved. It is the place where you communicate to us of how near you are. Lord, we ask now that as we hear from your word, enable our hearts and our minds to be receptive to it. Break down whatever resistance, whatever arrogance that we may have. We pray that you would speak to us personally and powerfully and collectively in such a way that we would be transformed inside out, both at the individual level and as a church family. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is not far, that you are not distant, that you are not cold and careless, but that you are a God that is near, you are imminent, you are here. And so, Father, would you please bless us now as we hear this word. Would you please bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the great Puritan theologian and author John Bunyan talks about how certain people can be saints abroad but devils at home. According to Bunyan, there are certain people that walk on this earth that are saints. They're kind, they're generous, they're very uh, nice to complete strangers or people who don't know them well. But when it comes to people who are very close to them, family members, close friends, siblings, they're evil, they're harsh, they're cruel, they're sinister, they're almost demonic. Now, for many of us in here who come from an East Asian background, this is something that many of us probably can easily relate to and easily verify in our own lives, right? Do we not know people in our lives, especially since most of us in here are Asian, where the thing of saving face and keeping up appearances is so important that we've known people in our lives who can be saints to complete strangers, but they're viciously cruel, they're like devils at home? This is something that we see all the time, and we were raised in this kind of setting. However, what's also interesting is that in Western culture, which also many of us are very familiar with, we see the opposite also being true as well. We also see the opposite where some people on this earth can be saints at home, but they're evil, they're demonic to those abroad. And what I mean by that is there are many people who walk on this earth that when it comes to their own friends, when, they come, when it comes to their own family, they're saints, They're so kind, they're so generous, they're so loving. But when it comes to someone who is completely different from them, a stranger, an outsider, right, they're completely vicious, they're cruel, they're unkind, they're almost as if they're different people. Just turn on the news and you see this problem happening all the time in our culture today, whether it be in the form of racism, form of homophobia, bullying, unkindness to people just because of their different faith or religion or, or because of their different ethnicity and cultural background. Everywhere we look, it seems that as a culture, we have a natural proclivity of being excluding, judging, antagonizing the person who from our perspective isn't like us. Someone who is outside of our tribe, right? Someone who is a stranger. Someone who is an out. 
outsider. Now, the question that I want to ask for you guys today is, what do we as followers of Jesus, how do we live differently? If this is the cultural environment that we're in, where we are just only kind to those who are like us or those who are part of us, but that we're vicious and cruel to those who are not like us, how are we as God's people to live differently? We're continuing our annual sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year called Grow Up. Right? And the purpose of this series is to look at the various attributes and characteristics that God's people should live out as they're living amongst the world. Because our conviction is, is that when you grow up in the gospel, you are then equipped to go out and to bless the world with the gospel. Okay? And if you can see behind me, you see it right here, the attributes that we are to embody. We're to be godly people. We're to be relationally competent. We're to be outwardly compassionate. We're to be wise people. We're to be committed to the universal church. We're to be people of prayer. Today, we're going to take a look at the second attribute, which is relationally competent. That is, as followers of Jesus, how do we make sure that we relate to people outside of the church in such a way that it blesses the world as our mission statement states? Well, here in our passage, a very short passage, Jesus tells us how that is so, how we are to relate to those who are different from us, whether it be in the form of race, religion, sexual orientation, or just personality-wise. How are we to relate to those who are different, those who are strangers to us, those who are the outsiders? Well, he tells us in this single verse that has been famously known as the golden rule. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you in regards to the golden rule. First, I want to talk about the criticism towards the golden rule. Second, I want to talk about the attitude behind the golden rule. And finally, I want to end it with the only way to live out the golden rule. The criticism against the golden rule, the attitude behind the golden rule, and finally, the only way to live out the golden rule. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the criticism towards the golden rule. Now, the golden rule has been around for a long time, even before Jesus walked on this earth, which I'm going to talk about in my next point. And throughout its long history, the general consensus and the general feeling towards the golden rule has always been positive. In other words, when you consider all the different cultures and all the different religions where you find the golden rule, almost everyone everywhere had a very high regard to the golden rule. Everyone loved the golden rule. In fact, the golden rule gets its name not from the Bible and not from a Christian. Did you know that? Many people think the golden rule is actually written in the Bible, right? That Jesus taught the golden rule which says, you shall, you know, blah, 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 blah. The golden rule doesn't get its name from the Bible or from a Christian. The term golden rule originated from a pagan Roman emperor by the name of Alexander Severus, who was so impressed with this teaching of Jesus, he must have heard it somewhere, that he was so moved to write it in gold letters on his chamber door. The golden rule has been around for ages and ages, and people who have been so positively impacted it recognize how amazing this simple, short, and yet powerful why statement is. Hence, we get the name golden rule today. And so it seems... That throughout its long history, everyone, everywhere, from all walks of life, really loved the golden rule. That is until today. Because believe it or not, there is growing mounting criticism and disapproval towards the golden rule. And the reason why there is such criticism and such animosity towards it is because of the first part of this statement that Jesus says when he says this. So whatever you wish. You see those two words, you wish? It's because of those two words that a lot of people do not like the golden rule. In fact, they downright hate it. It's because of those two words that they say that the golden rule is bad, it's not golden, in fact, it's downright evil. Now, you're scratching your head and you're thinking, well, what, why? What is it about those two words that make the golden rule not so golden? Well, I want to read to you a quote from a TED Talk 
that's entitled The Trouble with the Golden Rule. It literally is a TED Talk that says The Trouble with the Golden Rule. It was given by a man named Brendan Schultz, who's the Executive Director of Strategy and Planning up at York University in Toronto, Canada. Listen to what he says in his TED Talk about the Golden Rule. He says this, quote, The trouble with the Golden Rule is that it's ethnocentric. It assumes what's good for me is good for you, and it ignores all of our individual differences and norms. I can give you an example. I'm a big extrovert. And so if I was at a party and two people are standing off at the side having a conversation together, my inclination would be to bring them and draw them in, into the large group. Because if I was at a party and I was standing off at the side, that's what I would want. But those two people, maybe they're introverts, might be having the best part of the night right there. And I would be ruining it by trying to do to them what I would want done to me. So with that in mind, I would like to recommend an upgrade to the rule, the platinum rule. The platinum rule states, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. The key here is that we're finally focusing on the receiver, the them and they. Okay, so here's what he's basically saying. The reason why the golden rule, in his opinion, is not so golden is because it encourages you to impose your relational norms, your relational preferences, your relational and social desires onto a person that may not share those values, those norms, and desires. Right? So instead of actually being kind, you're imposing. Instead of being loving, you're being aggressive by giving them something that maybe they don't want to receive. It's kind of like the proverbial person where, you know, your mom loves broccoli and she just wants to shove broccoli in your face. Like, no, mom, thank you. I don't want to eat it. Like, no, it's good. Right? You'll love it. And you're like, no, I don't. Yes, you do, right? It's kind of like that. Right? Now, to his credit, there is some truth to what he's saying. If you look at certain relationships, particularly marriage, you do see something that is similar to what he's describing here. I mean, let me give you a scenario. Um, According to psychologists, you and I have different expressions or different ways of perceiving love. It's called the love languages. Have you guys heard of that, the love languages? Apparently, according to psychologists, there are five different kinds of love languages out there. Okay, So let's think of this scenario for a moment. Let's say there's a guy. His love language is... Physical touch. That's one of the love language. Physical touch. It's usually the guys that have physical touch as a love language. But anyway, what physical touch love language means is this guy feels love whenever the person he's in love with is always touching them. Hugs, holding hands, kisses, you know, maybe even being physically, sexually intimate. Whenever a person who has the love language of physical touch gets physical, you know, contact, that's how they say, wow, this person really loves me because they're touching me so much. I love it. Let's say a guy like this marries a girl who has another love language, which for most women are words of affirmation. In other words, this woman feels love when her significant other showers her with compliments. Oh, babe, your hair is so amazing. Oh, of course you don't look fat in that dress. Oh, my goodness, yes, you wake up with no makeup, you look better with make- than without makeup. You know that? that- You look better than you did with makeup. You know, it's just kind of like showering with compliments, writing little love letters. Now, imagine a guy like that marries a girl like this. Can you imagine the volatility of their marriage? Because from the wife's perspective, he's like, what is wrong with my husband? He is like a perv. He's always on top of me. He's always trying to touch me. He's always trying to, like, say he loves me. Well, meanwhile, the husband's like, what is wrong with my wife? Why is she so frigid? Why is she teasing me by just writing these little, like, sappy, cheesy love letters and putting in my briefcase or sending me weird emails, you know, saying how great I am? That doesn't do anything for me. Here's a situation where you have a married couple 
where they feel like they're not being loved, and yet from the other person's perspective, they're doing their best to show love in accordance to their own love language, right? I've been in ministry now full-time as a pastor for over 15 years, and I've counseled many married couples who've had this problem. Now, when you hear me say that, and you can think about this criticism that this guy has at TED Talk, you might be thinking, wow, this guy's actually right. Maybe the golden rule isn't so golden because this dynamic actually happens. People are imposing what they want onto people. They may not want what they want exactly the same way. But I would disagree with that statement, and I would disagree with this guy. Okay? Why? If you notice, let me explain why. If you notice, the golden rule is very succinct. It's very short. Right? It's fortune cookie short, which means you can fit the entire golden rule on those tiny slips of paper they put in fortune cookie. It's very, very short. Why is that so important to know that it's so short? Because by noticing its shortness, it teaches you the purpose and its design as to why it was given to us. Let me explain by quoting you a very famous and very brilliant Bible scholar by the name of John Stott. This is what he says about the golden rule in Matthew 7. Listen to what he says. Quote, in Matthew 7, 1 through 12, Jesus has introduced to us three basic relationships. At the center is our heavenly father, God, to whom we come, on whom we depend, and who never gives his children other than good gifts. Next, there are our fellow believers. And the anomaly of a censorious spirit which judges and of a hypocritical spirit which sees the splinter in spite of the plank is that it is incompatible with Christian brotherliness. And then listen to what he says here. Then there are those who are outside of the church family where verse 12 is the rule, the golden rule. It transforms our actions and wish for him what we would wish for ourselves. We would never be mean, always generous, never harsh, always understanding, never cruel, always kind. Here's what he's saying. The golden rule, the purpose of the golden rule is that it's primarily designed to show us how we treat those who we do not know, namely the strangers. How we treat those who are different from us, namely the outsider. If you go to a bookstore and you look for books that will teach you techniques, long processes, techniques, and long-winded formulas on how to have a better marriage or how to have a better parenting relationship with your child or how to have better relationship with your coworkers, you'll find tons of books like that. If you go to the bookstore, there are tons of books that will have hundreds and hundreds of pages that will teach you long-winded processes, techniques, formulas, processes on how to have better relationships with people that you already have relationships with. However, if you try to find a book that will teach you a long-winded process and a long-winded formula with lists and recipes and, 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 and so forth on how to relate better to complete strangers and people who are different from you, you'll hardly find any. There'll hardly be any books like that. And rightly so. Why? Because when it comes to relating to someone who is different from you, someone who you don't know, you don't need the right technique, which is long and, 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 and complicated. What you simply need is a short, succinct idea because when it comes to relating to strangers and people who are different from you, you don't need the right technique. You need the right attitude. You need the right attitude. Right? And attitude can be fully captured and encapsulated with one simple statement. You see, if you think the golden rule is a technique on how you interact with complete strangers or outsiders... Of course you can criticize it. But if you see it the way that it was meant to be seen, which is really a general posture, a general attitude that we should have to complete strangers and outsiders, then you'll f finally see how ingenious the golden rule is. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, what is this attitude that the golden rule tells us to have towards outsiders and strangers, people outside of the church? Great question. To explain, let me go to my next point. The attitude behind the golden rule. Let's read again our passage, but let's pay special attention to the last portion of the golden rule. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 12. He says, this, the golden rule is of the law and the prophets. Or as another translation puts it, the golden rule is the summary of all of the law and the prophets. Now for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, law and prophets, it simply means the entire Old Testament. Jesus saying that the golden rule is a summary of the entire Old Testament. Why is that so important to realize? It's important to realize because the entire Old Testament was written way before Jesus walked on this earth. Right? The Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was all written down, all finished, 400 years prior to Jesus' birth, 400 years prior to when he was walking on this earth. Which means what? It means the golden rule existed way before Jesus existed physically on this earth. You see, by referencing the law and the prophets, Jesus is acknowledging that the golden rule is not original to him. It's not something that he made up. It's something that exists long before him. It existed in the culture of ancient Israel. And here's the thing. It not only existed in ancient Israel, it existed in other cultures that were very different from Israel and in other cultures that had no direct contact with Israel whatsoever, like ancient Greece, ancient India, ancient China. If you look at those cultures, no interaction with one another back in the day. No, 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 no compatibility because they were so different from each other, and yet you see the same golden rule in all of these very different and very distant cultures from each other. What does that tell us? It tells us that in spite of all the differences that you think are there between you and another ethnic group or you and another faith, the fact that we find the golden rule so ubiquitously spread out amongst different cultures and nations tells us that we are a lot more similar to other people who are different from us than we think, right? The fact that you find the same golden rule scattered abroad amongst all these different cultures that are so distant from one another, so different from one another, tells us that what the assumption people make when they criticize about the golden rule is not true. If you remember in my first point, one of the reasons why people are so critical about the golden rule is because they make this assumption, hey, My love language is different from your language. My idea of fun is so different from your idea of fun. What I think is good for me is different from what you think is good. In other words, there's this core assumption that people make today that we're just so different. There's nothing in common that we share whatsoever. But again, because we see the golden rule everywhere in every culture, east, west, north, south, black, white, Asian, South American, it tells us that we have a lot more in common that we care to admit. In fact, there is one universal common attitude that every single human being has, no matter where they are or who they are, where they come from, that the golden rule is trying to resist, that the golden rule is trying to us replace with the attitude that it teaches us to have instead. And the question is, what is this universal common attitude that we have that the golden rule is trying us to replace it with? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to focus on that last phrase again, Law and the prophets. As I said earlier, this is simply another way of referring to the entire Old Testament. And the question is, does the Old Testament have one main teaching? Out of all of the 33 books that are written in the Old Testament, is there one common message, one common idea? 
In his award-winning book, Idolatry, Hebrew scholar Moshe Halbertal, who teaches up at Harvard, says there is one common idea. You know what it is? This is what he says. The central theological principle in the Bible is the refutation of idolatry. The central theological principle in the Bible is the refutation of idolatry. In other words, the central message of the law and the prophets is to worship the true God by not worshiping yourself. Let me say that again. The central message of the law and the prophets is to worship the true God by no longer worshiping yourself. You see, the Bible tells us that there is one main universal problem to the human condition. And it is a worship problem. It is a problem known as idolatry. Every single human being that walks on this earth and will ever walk on this earth has a problem of worshiping something or someone that is not God. Every person is by nature an idolater. Now for those of you here investigating Christianity, you're probably thinking to yourself, you're ridiculous, pastor. I'm here because I'm not sure if I do believe in God. In fact, I'm pretty certain right now there is no God. So how can you say I'm guilty of committing the sin of idolatry, worshiping another God, but I don't even worship the real God that you claim is real? If that's what you think, consider this very penetrating and insightful quote from Tim Keller over at Redeemer. He says this, quote, To contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people in the ancient world, bowing down before statues. But our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from the ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disasters. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement, but the same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our own individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incest to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifices by neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. You hear what he's saying? Even though consciously you don't think you're worshiping, You are. See, the Bible says worshiping is not some extracurricular activity that some people choose to do and another group of people choose not to do. Worshiping is ingrained to who you are, right? It's like breathing. You don't consciously choose to breathe. You just breathe because you have a natural instinct to breathe, because you have a natural instinct to life. God created you to worship. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping an idol. The question is not whether or not you worship. The question is, what do you worship? That is what Scripture teaches us. Every single one of us is a worshiper, whether you're a Christian worshiper or whether you're an idol worshiper. Those are the only two categories that Scripture says exist. You and I are always worshiping. And here's the thing. The Bible goes on to say that behind every idolatry that we commit, whether it's because we worship our beauty We worship our family to where we sacrifice all of our life for them. Or whether because we worship our career to where we're willing to give crazy hours and time and and money to it. The Bible says behind all of that is really a desire to worship yourself. Behind every idol is you. If you go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, you read the story of Adam and Eve, right? God tells them not to eat from a specific tree, and yet they do. Why? 
Because Satan promised them something if they, for, if they eat the forbidden fruit, which is what? You shall be like God, which basically is saying you shall be God. You shall be your own God. Behind every idolatry that we could ever fall into is really an idolatry of self, self-worship. That is the universal problem of humanity. Here's my question. If you think that you are God, now, some of you may not agree with what I'm saying here, but let's just hypothetically say for just a moment you do agree with what I'm saying, okay? Let's see where this idea goes for a moment. If it is true with what I'm saying that the fundamental problem that you and I have, that is the root of all problems that we have in this world, is because we see ourselves as God, we perceive ourselves as God, what does that mean in terms of how we perceive to those around us? If we want to see ourselves as if we are the Lord of heaven and earth, what does that naturally mean in terms of how we are inevitably going to see those around us, especially people we don't know, especially strangers? You know, one of the things that make God God by definition is that he's holy. Do you know what it means to say that God is holy? Holy simply means set apart, unique. There is no one and nothing like him. He is the only God. That's what it means for God to be holy, right? And with that definition in mind, if you think you are God, which is another way of saying that you are the holy one, there's nothing and no one that comes close to you, no one categorically close to you in any way, what does that inevitably mean you're going to look at other people as? You're going to see other people as what? People who are not God. People who are beneath you. People who are called to acknowledge you and to serve you, right? This is the fundamental attitude that you and I have towards other people, especially the people we don't know, people who are strangers. They are beneath me. They are not someone of equal status in your eyes. In other words, you create a creator-creature distinction between yourself and the other person to where you feel they accommodate to you You do not accommodate to them. I mean, come on, let's be honest, guys. Whenever you meet someone for the first time, someone you've never met, you get introduced at a party or at a school or at a business place, do you not typically by instinct size that person up? Isn't one of the things that going on in the back of your mind is, is this person smarter than me? Is this person more good-looking than me? Is this person taller than me? Is this person tougher than me? Is this person more competent than me? I am willing to bet that if you honestly looked at the list, a comparative list of the people that you meet for the first time, and you looked at people who you think are better than you and those who are beneath you, I am willing to bet that the list that says people who are beneath me is much longer than the list that says better than me. Right? Because even if this other person is taller than you, you think, well, you know what? I'm tougher than him. I can take him. Right? Or you think, oh, you know what? This person went to a better school, but you know what? I'm actually smarter than this person. I read more books than this person. Or this person you know, has a better job description, but you know what? I'm more capable than he is. If you are honest with yourself in your heart of hearts, you always size people up when you meet them for the first time. And the reality is, is that you always size people down as you always size yourself up when you meet them. Very rarely will you honestly and soberly say, you know what, this dude is actually better than me. This girl is actually more capable than me, and therefore let me give them the due respect they deserve. No. We all have it in us to say, I am of greater stature than you are. Right? This is a fundamental attitude that you and I carry. And it's this universal attitude that we see everywhere. 
And it's this attitude that Jesus wants us to replace with the attitude he teaches us to have in the golden rule, which is, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, when it comes to the stranger, when it comes to the outsider, don't just assume that you're better than them. Don't just assume that you can take them. Don't just assume that you can dominate them. Don't just assume that you're more capable of them. Instead... See them as your equal. See them as a peer. See them as someone who deserves respect as much as you deserve respect. Treat them with the same kind of charity that you would want for yourself. Treat them with the same kind of recognition with the recognition you think you are entitled to. Assume that they are good just as you assume that you are good. In other words, see them as someone who is no different from you. The question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, Jesus teaches us here. If you want to change how you treat other people, it has to first begin in terms of changing how you treat yourself. If you want to change how you treat people, you first have to change how you treat yourself. Because if the fundamental problem that causes all these issues of racism and antagonism and and, and sinister treatment is because we just assume we're better than them because we're categorically different than them, you have to let that go. Of course, that sounds easier said than done. How do you let go of this insatiable desire of wanting to be God, right? How would you ever want to give up that kind of recognition and perception of yourself? The answer leads me to my final point. The only way to live out the golden rule. According to the gospel of Luke, after Jesus died and three days later he rose again, he was on a road. And on this road he ran into former disciples of his who for some reason didn't recognize him. For some reason. He must have looked different or he must have done something to their eyes where they couldn't fully see him for who he was. And he started teaching them about himself. Listen to one of the things that he taught them on the Emmaus road. He said this, starting in Verse 44 of chapter 24 in the Gospel of Luke. He says this, Then he, Jesus, said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, which said, there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. According to Jesus, all of the laws of Moses, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, in other words, all of the Old Testament teach Jesus must die, that God must become a man. He must live the perfect life that none of us lives. He must suffer a substitutionary death that we deserve so that we can be forgiven, so that we can have eternal life and not have eternal death and condemnation, which he suffered for us on the cross. In other words, the Old Testament teaches us the gospel. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute. Pastor, didn't you say in your previous point that the entire Old Testament teaches us to worship the true God and not worship ourselves? But now you're saying... That the entire Old Testament teaches us about the gospel? Well, what is it? Is it this or that? To which I say, yes. It's both. The only way you're going to stop worshiping yourself, the only way you're going to naturally stop thinking that you're better, categorically different, and holy 
compared to other people is by understanding the gospel, is by believing the gospel. That is the only way that you're going to be free from thinking that you're God and other people are not. Let me ask you this question. If we could somehow tap into the, to the universal human psyche for a moment, why do you think people naturally want to believe that they are God and not worship the true God? If you could somehow tap into the collective mindset of humanity for a moment, what would be your guess as to why we do not want to worship the true God, but we would rather worship ourselves? There are many excellent answers to that question according to Scripture. But the Bible highlights one main best answer to that question. That answer is the ultimate reason is because there is an assumption that the true God does not, would not love us, care for us, bless us as we would love, care, and bless ourselves. Or if I could simply put it this way, we honestly think we would be a better God than the true God. That's why we worship ourselves and not the true God. But consider for a moment what we've been talking about in regards to the golden rule. The golden rule exposes that we all carry this attitude that causes us to look down on people to where it manifests in the form of racism, bullying, hurting, judging, stealing, and demonizing people simply because we assume we're categorically different than them. We're better than them. But consider what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that the true God treats us not as people who are beneath him, even though we are, And not as people that he wants to judge, though he can. And not even people he can dominate, though he has every right to. Instead, the gospel teaches that Jesus came to be our servant. He came to be under us. He came to be humiliated for us. He came to suffer for us. He came to be judged by us. For ultimately, he would end up in a humiliating death on the cross. Why? So he could show how much he loves you? Yes. So he could forgive you of your sins? Yes. But also to show... That he's a much better God than you could ever be. The display of the cross is also God's display of himself as to the kind of God that he is. And the kind of God that he is, is categorically better than any God that you think you could be for yourself or for this world. You see, in order for us to be our own God, we have to be willing to hurt and humiliate others and treat them like they're beneath us. In order for Jesus to be our God, he had to be willing to be hurt. He had to be willing to be humiliated in order to be our Savior. Tell me, which God is better? Which God is better for the world? Which God is actually better for you? Yourself or the true God? The golden rule says that we are to treat people as we want to be treated. But the gospel says that God treats us as we don't deserve to be treated. He treats us with mercy, with kindness, and with great dignifying love. Even though it meant he would not get those things. He would be humiliated. He would be degraded by people who really are beneath him. Would you ever do that as God? Probably not. The true God does it for all of us. He does it for you. So I ask you again, who is the better God? It's only when you constantly think about the profound nature of the gospel that you wake up and that you realize, I'm nowhere near as the kind of God that the true God is. This universe is much better when he is God, not me. 
This family that I'm a part of is better when he is God, not me. This business that I run is better when he is God, not me. This marriage is better when he is God, not me. This church is better when he is God, not me. This is the only way that you will ever live out the golden rule, by believing in the gospel. Because it's only when you believe that Jesus is the better God as it is evidence in his sacrificial, humiliating death on the cross that you will finally let go of your obsession to be God yourself. And therefore, by letting that go, it will change how you view that person who is different, that person who is a stranger, that person who is an outsider. Do you know how infuriating it is as a pastor to see That when Christians who claim they are followers of God, that God is their God, and they are filled with such racist tendencies? Can you believe how atrocious it must be to God when he sees Christians picketing a military funeral because it was found out that that soldier was gay? And they say atrocious things. That say, excuse me, fags go to hell. Do you imagine how infuriating that must be to God? When Korean Christians treat black neighbors as if they are beneath them. Can you imagine how atrocious it is when a church only wants to open its doors to people that are like them. But distance themselves from people who want to come and hear the gospel. But they're not welcome here because they don't fit in. If you claim that Christ is truly your God and you deny that you are not, let me ask you, how are you treating people who are different from you? How are you treating people who are not like you at all? If you are struggling with guilt because you know this is you, my response is don't fall into the habit of saying just do better. My charge to you is believe the gospel. The more you believe the gospel, the more loving you will be to those outside of this church. And the more this world will see that Jesus is truly who he claims to be. Let us pray. Father, have mercy on us. We are all guilty here. None of us in here are innocent. No culture, no race, no group, no nation is innocent of this universal sinful attitude that is within us. Evidenced by the fact that we see this golden rule scattered abroad in so many different cultures and nations so many different individuals and people groups. Father, with all the huffing and puffing of how different we claim to be, we know that in your eyes we are all the same. We are all sinners. We are all rebels. We all need your grace. Father, when we think of these things, we're comforted by the fact that Scripture says you're God of the nations. You're the God of all nations, which means you're the Savior of all nations. You're the savior of all people groups, which means 
if we are in Christ, we are all family. No matter what color, no matter what socioeconomic background we come from, no matter what neighborhood we grew up in, we're all family. Help us to display this cosmopolitan, international love to the world so that this world that is so devastated by racism, bullying, homophobia, every other kind of discriminatory hatred will be silenced through the witnesses of the church. Would you enable us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Would you enable us by the power of the gospel to live out this precious, truly golden rule? For we cannot do it ourselves. We need the power of your grace to at work within us. We need your Holy Spirit to work within us. Would you enable us to do that now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.